0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. 30 years ago, the poet and critic Blake Morrison forged the way for a new genre of confessional memoir with his groundbreaking book, And When Did You Last See Your Father? His new memoir, Two Sisters, is an even more poignant and profound exploration of family and human frailty. Using personal storytelling with an examination of sibling relationships in history and literature. Esme Bright sat down with Blake to find out more.
1: Blake, you're a prolific writer with an overranging from libretti to journalism to poetry, but you've returned to prose for your third time, for your third family memoir, this time about the relationship with your sister and half sister Jill and Josie. How did you find returning to life writing when working on this new book?
2: Well in a way it was a return and another way not, in that I've always sort of kept diaries, particularly when I'm unhappy, and I've got quite a lot of diary entries about both my sister Jill and my half sister Josie dating back. I'd written something after Josie's death and then more recently after my sister died, there seemed only one subject really only one thing to write about so it felt very natural to do that I mean I hadn't planned I never thought oh I'll write a memoir about my sister but in the end there was no choice that's what I had to do.
1: Mm, you needed to write it but I have to say I, I reread and when did you last see your father last week in order to get get in the zone for this and uh, do my due diligence but two sisters differs in style quite a lot so if people are familiar with that they might find this one a bit of a different read I think and when is it's much more sure-footed the narrative swings from past to present and the memories that you have of your dad that are bubbling to the surface as you're returning to your childhood home and and dealing with losing him they're they're much brighter and they're much more clear and two sisters it feels more like it feels more like a search for truth and it's more openly self-conscious about you picking through your memories and teasing out what really happened do you I was wondering do you think that self-reflexiveness is a result of being older or being this being your third memoir or how do you think that came about that style
2: I think it's partly to do with me being older um 30 years Hmm. have gone since my book about my father and I wrote that in the immediate months after his death and that's why it probably seems so fresh to you and vivid and then I wrote a memoir of my mother after that, and so this is the mm. third time of going back to childhood and, and the past. And it's a more philosophical, if you like, more, or more more self-reflexive book necessarily, because it's a search. It's a, it's a kind of search to understand, particularly my, my full sister Jill, but to some extent my half-sister Josie, and in particular why their lives turned out as they did, so differently to mine, and so self-destructively, so that... They were both younger than me, in Josie's case, nine years younger, and yet they both predeceased mm-hmm. me, uh, which seems wrong. And um, that's part of what I was exploring, necessarily by the sound, the way I'm making it sound, a sad pair of stories, mm-hmm. but I hope th- there are other elements of the book, not least more general reflections on brothers and sisters, that um, mm-hmm. are kind of a relief from from that sadness.
1: You used the word search then. I think you're right in that it is searching for explanations about your sisters, but also you're searching through yourself and your own experiences, of those families. And we were just talking about a passage to read. And I'd love it if you could read a passage from when you're looking at your diaries from, it's from New Year's Day, 1998, if you'd be kind enough to do that. Yeah.
2: um, This is about a trip up to Yorkshire. I now live in London to, to my parents, um, a house uh, in the um, aftermath of of their deaths. Actually, when I go over to Mum's house, I find that the front door has been damaged; the wood splintered, but that it still locks. Hardly the catastrophe Jill made it out to be. The blood stain the wall is more upsetting. She fell onto the radiator one night, and blood spurted from her head. Luckily, her husband Win had an intuition there might be a problem, and went round to find her lying in a puddle of blood. Thinking at first that she had tried to kill herself, he rang for an ambulance. They stitched her up, and later that morning he collected her from hospital. She resumed drinking at once. Her latest trick is to leave credit cards in various prearranged spots about the garden for the taxi drivers who secretly deliver her booze. I found one on top of the wall at the end of the path to her house today, and handed it to her casually, playing along. Here, Jill, I found this. Oh, thanks, however did it get there? Each of us, a feeble actor. It sometimes seems remarkable that she's still alive. She has the DTs after a bout, like this last one, and has her eyesight problems, but is otherwise relatively healthy. At this rate, she'll outlive us all. Reading these diary entries now, I feel bad. A prig, a prat, a prick. They're short on empathy and fraternal warmth. I couldn't get past the anger I felt on mum and dad's behalf. In their retirement, they might have travelled, taken up new hobbies, rested, instead of which worry about Jill consumed them. It's natural for parents to worry, and the worries don't stop when your kids grow up. They don't even stop when you become grandparents, at which point there's a new generation to worry about. But mum and dad had more worries than most. I took their side, seeing Jill's addiction as a failure of will, not an illness. Their suffering made me cold towards her. Wynne, Louise and Liam, her children, were suffering too. That made me colder still. It's what happens with addicts. They kill your compassion. For a time, Jill's drinking killed mine. Did I handle things any better? than the other men in her life, Dad and Wynne. Hard to say. When their patients ran out, they could be draconian. Both resorted to locking Jill up, whether as punishment or to keep her from getting more booze. I couldn't have done that. Then again, she wasn't in my life every day. And from time to time, I did lock her out of my heart. Now I think I should have done more phoned her more often, reassured her I loved her, joined Al-Anon, the charity for friends and family of alcoholics, in search of advice. But we stayed in touch. There was no falling out. I wasn't that cold. We were Irish twins. I never hated
1: her. Irish twins. i some, some, some brothers who really did hate their sisters and a sort of next chapter what were you saying Irish twins sorry I
2: interrupted you yeah yeah I was just going to explain that that, that phrase mm. is often used about children born close together you know within 10 11 12 months in our case 16 months and we did grow up together you know we, we, we it felt as it wasn't, isn't always the case with siblings you know they can be five years apart we were just over a year mm. apart and had a very shared similar kind of childhood even though we turned out so differently
1: hmm but your your honest evaluation of that diary entry at the end of that chapter it's just it's very startling and it's also amazing that you still had that source to look back on and I wondered if you consciously saved correspondence and your diaries ever with the idea of referring back to them or if it's just something that you've always done
2: yeah I don't know I kept a diary when my father was very ill too and I had that to draw on and Hmm. uh, I don't think I was keeping them with a view to a book ahead. But, but you know, I don't know, heart of hearts, maybe there was some secret <laughs> splinter of ice there and I was doing so. But usually mm. I write diary entries when I'm upset and I certainly used to get very upset on my visits up to Yorkshire seeing the state Jill was in. Um, mm-hmm. And then they are a resource, they bring back memories which would otherwise be lost.
1: At Passage, it encapsulates how you're, you're willing to offer yourself up to the reader and your behaviour, it's sort of up for their analysis as much as it's up for yours, and you grapple with memory, unsure of what's fair and what's true, and that word truth comes up quite a lot in the book. I, I wonder, do you think that some readers will be shocked by the extremity of your honesty, both regarding your behaviour and also your sister's lives and their private lives?
2: Well, it's a very good question. I mean, I think when I wrote the memoir of my father 30 years ago, people were shocked by the, the candour of that, the intimacy with which I described his illness and death. And there, there might be similar feelings here in, in the passages, particularly in those diary entries where I'm describing the state Jill could get in when, when she was drinking. I don't know. I mean, all I, all I can say is I was trying to be honest and truthful Mm. and I felt there was a kind of purpose to that kind of honesty because lots of people will have somebody in the family with issues of one kind or another and the kind of things I describe going on in my family Mm. will be familiar to them so you know you're hoping there's recognition but it's not self-indulgence or even you know just your own family that has a wider a wider brief.
1: And it's not done for shock as you say it's done for kinship, which, um, speaking of which, you actually, you talk a lot about readership and kinship. And I know you had a lot of people approach you after your first book about your father came out, people sort of recognising bits about their family. And uh, I imagine that is a strange feeling, people um, using your book to unpack their own family lives. But you yourself turned to literature and siblings and famous brothers and sisters for guidance. And this book, is, as well as containing bits from your diaries, It's you describe it as a commonplace book. And the reader follows you on these tangents as you search for comfort. And I wonder, since writing the book, do you still find yourself searching for siblings and keeping an ear out for those stories? Or or, or have you sort of siblings yourself out?
2: <laughs> no, I'm not sibbed out yet. But I, <clears throat> I, d- I did... Now, I really got into Sib I never thought about Sib Lit before, the literature mm-hmm. of siblings. And first of all, I was struck how rarely it was that brothers seemed to write about sisters. You know, sisters about sisters, brothers about brothers, sisters about brothers, but not brothers about sisters. Uh, and then I did begin finding things and people put me on to things. And, you know, this weekend gone, I noticed a novel had just been reissued called Siblings. I thought I better, better buy that because I still want to enlarge my understanding of that field. But yeah, it didn't, oddly enough, in the book, it may feel like digressions. And I, I have a little footnote early on saying people, they could skip that and stick to the main narrative if they want. But to me, it was it was part of the search. It was, you know, what is the sibling relationship? And what particularly is the relationship between an older brother and a younger sister? What should it be? What has it been in the past? And and I looked to books and historical examples for an understanding of that, and that was kind of contextualizing my own situation with my sister, and therefore to me it was integral rather than you know peripheral.
0: Mm.
1: You also say that these footnotes can be ignored as as they often are, which I, as a reader, then found as a challenge to never <laughs> never not read the footnotes. Um, sorry to to quote yourself back to you but um I noticed that in your earlier memoir you actually say um are use sort of quoting Larkin and you, you did it then as well but you say but even Larkin in the end can do no good stand them up against grief and even the greatest poems the greatest paintings the greatest novels lose the power to console I used to think solace was the point of art or part of it but now it's failed the test it doesn't seem to have much point at all and you know you, you obviously wrote that in the depths of grief but do you feel differently now and if not solace what what do you think is the point of art
2: well there's a big question um there has all kinds of point and I think in this case partly it might have been solace but mostly it was fun I actually just you know I was at a low point really writing this book I had two sisters who self destroyed in a way, if you like self destructive before their time, and you know that was very grim to write about and consider and if you like, the fun bit was was the research or was was reading up other other novels, other pieces of history about others brothers and sisters, and not you know there may there may have been an element of solace to it, but there was certainly a sense of life and vigor in those stories, which I, I was kind of missing in. In the main narrative that I was writing, unavoidably so
1: did you find yourself becoming a, attached to any particular duos, especially you, you there's a very wide range in the book, but I wondered if any you kept sort of
2: you mentioned Larkin, and I have always been obsessed with Larkin, <laughs> and the, <laughs> the relationship with him and his sister was is is quite funny, really. I mean it was awful. His behavior did him no credit. The Wordsworth I was interested in, uh, obviously, always been interested in them. The Mendelssohns I didn't know about, but I was struck by that. Uh, And and other examples too. You know, going back to your question of what what is art for, it's too big a question to consider, really. But you know, there's enjoyment, there's there's solace, there's there's education. You know, there's there's you learn stuff, and I think for me, books are always while you're gripped by them and enmeshed in their storyline or a set of poems, the the lyric flow of them if you like, there's also that something that you take away and often that is is some enlargement of your knowledge and understanding of something and that's what I always look for I guess in in books.
1: I think that's a lovely way to put it and um, you sort of I think in your more self-effacing interviews, you've joked in the past that you write because it's it's a cheaper form of of therapy. And, you know, I can imagine that you also read these books and you use the words of other authors and and modify them to better fit your own feelings at points. But I wonder, do you do you write because you must or do you ever write with the idea that your own words might provide comfort to other people just as those authors give it to you?
2: Uh, well, I think I write be, be, because I must. I mean, occasionally there's required writing, you know, the commissioned writing that you do. But <laughs> you know, the, the the particularly the three family memoirs, there was a sense of I must do this. this. These are really interesting stories to tell, and because it's family and all sort of stuff that goes on in families, maybe other people will be interested. That was as much as I hoped for, particularly with the first book about my father. But I was amazed by the letters I got, by the reaction I got. That actually people were helped by them, or or said, you know, that, that they connected the story I was telling to the, the story they had with their father. And you know, I haven't had uh, well, the book's only just out. I haven't had a deluge of letters or emails. About sister stories or sibling stories, uh, one person said to me, uh, "I'm going to look. I'm going to improve my relationship with my brother now. It's, you know, we've been too cold with each other, and I've got to do something about that." Uh, someone else wrote to me saying that she'd seen my sister in sort of distressing circumstances, so there was that connection. But I hope, I hope people will, I hope people will recognise things in it as, as as they did in the books about my my father and and mother.
1: It must be a strange experience to share your family with people, and especially when the book about your father was then turned into a film. That people, Jim Broadbent to you is playing your dad, but I imagine for some people, George, Jim Broadbent is your dad, and that that sensation do you ever find that odd? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you feel like Colin Firth then? <laughs> I don't feel like Colin Firth, but, I, but there was a, <laughs> Rats. no one
2: has ever stopped me in the street and said, "Yeah, you look like Colin Firth." But Jim Broadbent was. Who, who came to meet me before he took on the role and um, asked me questions about my dad and mannerisms and one thing or another. But, you know, I thought he did him brilliantly. And there was a particular moment when he was lying in bed, being my father in the last days of his life, where he had a particular expression, which was, you know, spot on. It really was was my dad. You no, know, fil- I never wrote those books with a, a film or whatever in mind. Mm. You know, they're just particularly the one about my dad was written very quickly for myself. And luckily it it kind of, it reached others.
1: It struck a chord. And with this one, as well as tackling sort of the similar issues of grief and memory and family, you also are very candid about Jill suffering from addiction. And in one chapter, you write that you're on a mission here to demythologize the romance of heavy drinking. And, um, I wanted to talk to you about this because I wondered if, if you also think that this is quite a British problem. You say pubs were an integral part of our childhood, but pubs are an integral part of most lives for British people, from christenings, birthdays, weddings, wakes. We're, we're always at a pub after one of them. Do you, do you see this as a, a serious social problem and do you see this as a especially British problem?
2: No. And in fact, a lot of the, the, when I talk in that chapter about the myth of drinking and, and the, if you like, the almost glorification of drinking as fun and lively, it brings out secret things in people and all that. A lot of the examples I give are American writers. So, you know, it's just, it has been in the past uh, as big an issue there as here. Um, yeah, pub going was a really big part of our childhood. But you're you're right. Of course, pubs are integral to many of our many of our lives and social lives i was really it's just another of the possible reasons that jill got addicted as she did that that we were so habituated as children to alcohol being part of our lives and uh, did that play a part i i think it was probably a relatively small part but you know my father my sister and to some degree me all probably drank more than we should certainly jill did and mm-hmm but yeah you know it's 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 not good when you have somebody who's lives for drink every day from the moment they wake up it's you know the effect on themselves but also the effect on everybody around them is is grave and solemn and and i you know i'm not the only one who's demythologizing there've been lots of good books in recent years about about addiction i mean and you have got that wonderful novel shuggie bane uh, some and reflecting on his mother's drinking but i still think that there's a, there's a romance uh, around it mm. as well and yes. maybe i'm trying to get rid of a little bit of the romance
1: no when when you list all of these sort of uh, lots of american writers about literary types uh, sort of going off on benders and it being their sort of way of escaping reality it's it's striking when you go through the list as just how embedded it is in our concept of the artist as well. And I wondered if you thought that with growing conversation about mental health and do you think that the image of a tortured genius will lose its appeal with different generations? Or do you think that the idea of kind of being other and perhaps operating on a different creative plane is just too integral to our concept of like artistry?
2: I think it is too integral. And, you know, there are one or two writers who, you know, I will always think of in that way you know they just don't belong somehow they are other but mm. actually I think a lot of artistic production is a communal effort it's a team effort certainly getting a book out into the world is a team effort and you know I think there's there's probably been too much mythologizing of you know the tortured genius the solitary genius who who does it on his own and it's usually him mm. and you know more the idea that you take A lot of your creativity and inspiration from the people around you in producing the work, whatever it is, as well as then getting it out into the world, that that's never been sufficiently emphasized. I mean, for instance, editors are always demonized, you know, they're vicious brutes. And I found editors to be great. They, you know, they they liberate you or they 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 give you good ideas that you they save you from terrible mistakes and so on. And so the idea of anybody who's in the the background is somehow seen as, you know, inhibiting, or often seen as inhibitors of genius. And you know, we need to get away get away from all that. I think.
1: No, no, I agree. And you brought up editors then, and I actually wanted to ask you about the sort of the way that publishing's changed and the market for memoir as a genre has proliferated since you published your first memoir in 1993 and. I want to know what your thoughts are on the commercial appeal of memoir and how that's changed, not only with celebrity memoir, but I think you will sort of, people have always written memoir, but for you to write about what you said was just a a normal man, your father has become much more normal, but also celebrities wheeling their memoirs out has become uh, commonplace, even if you're not yet in adulthood, you can have your biography out. And I want to know what you thought about that and the way that the markets changed.
2: Yeah, well, it's my worry slightly. I'm, I, think, I think you're right. I think the time that I published mine, a book about my dad 30 years ago, it was less usual to think that a book about an ordinary life could be a memoir or a slice of life, it, you know, mm. the last weeks of a man's life. Could, could that be a, a write a novel about it, you know, invent something, change? So that. So that that was more surprising then. Now, now it's less surprising. But I think I think it's still, I think it's still tough for, for memoir writers. Uh, I I mean I mean the ordinary ones, not the celebs. I, I think the worry is that celebrity memoir is driving out the opportunities for, if you like, literary memoir for somebody's slice of life. I've worked with a lot of students at uh, Goldsmiths University doing life writing of one kind or another. Maybe they've lost somebody, or they're talking about getting through an illness, or whatever it is. And those books are not easy to find a market. Mm. Sometimes they do if they have some unique selling point or they're catastrophic enough, that they, they're they taken on. But despite the larger appetite for memoir and readership for memoir, I still think it's not necessarily an easy, an easy route to publication.
1: But also it's a distressing process to sell your life story and convince someone that it's not only literary and interesting but also commercially viable and I know there was a recent article in the bookseller actually which has sparked a conversation about whether publishers and agents ought to better prepare but also protect life writers and I I wondered if you also thought there might be a problem in the way that the industry do approach what the value is of other people's stories and what your experiences of being on a publicity trail for something which is your own life is like.
2: Yeah, no I mean I think it's a very interesting question and you could say I'm a bit hardened now because of this is the third time and I've got used to talking mm. about my family as if they were public property. But for a first time person I think there are all sorts of pitfalls. First of all the feedback among friends and family who you might think you know you've you've, you've, you've consulted them sufficiently or you've you've worked out what the reaction is going to be no. And there's always going to be something unpredictable and usually it'll be something upsetting to you. You've got to be ready for that. You've got to be ready for for readers coming back at you and saying, you shouldn't have written about that. That's a breach of privacy or a violation of etiquette. Um, you know, I, I can't say I've ever been, well, maybe I'm misremembering, but I can't think of being heckled at a literary festival for for breaching privacy, or you know, being to share oversharing, but it's perfectly conceivable that you know. I think most memoir writers worry desperately that that is is it worth it? Is it is my story interesting enough? Is is this going to be of any value to anybody else? That's the main mm. feeling of people I've talked to. That's the main feeling they have. Not overwhelming self confidence, let alone narcissism. But does this count? Does this carry any weight? So, yeah, I think they do need to be a bit more protected. It's just, it's a very difficult area. I mean, I think a lot of editors, publishers are just not used to it enough to know how, how vulnerable you can feel and, and of the dangers that are there. Fingers crossed that I'm not going to get it in the neck for this one in ways I've not anticipated, but it's possible.
1: But you also say in the book that you know, you're conscious of the fact that you know, Jill has children, and you you speak in the actual body of the book, not only in the acknowledgments, about the fact that you worry about what they'll think about it, and you don't want it to be a, a a misery memoir. You say it's of the worst genre of them all. But if someone sort of says, "Oh, they they deem your father a bully," or they they sort of call you a bad sibling, does it sting, or do you not read reviews, and it doesn't really hold that much power anymore?
2: Oh, I read reviews. Um, I just, I can't you do read but, reviews. But, <laughs> I, can't <laughs> I can't help but have, have, a have a look. I particularly read the bad ones, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I remember being really upset when, you know, somebody early on in a newspaper article about a book about my dad said, you know, describe him as a cheat. And I, uh, I wrote sort of protesting and he said, but you used the word cheat on page 13 or something <laughs> myself. I think now... Now I can take it take it more more readily it's It's my own fault I've exposed them, so I've got to let an audience make their own mind up about members of my family. I mean, I think the book about my father he appears a much more generous um lovable character in that book than he will come across as being in this book, and that's partly to do with what happens in this book as opposed to what I talked about in the earlier book about him but it's also the passage of time and thinking about other other ways in which you behave that I didn't take account of in that book about him my own changing views of the past so even the same characters over these three memoirs can appear in a different light each time
0: Mm.
2: to me Mm, and, and no doubt they will to others
0: hey there
1: You know, the uh, and there are some discrepancies as well because you can say certain things in two sisters which you couldn't have said before and you know um what was Sandra becomes Pat because Pat didn't want to have a pseudonym and I, those sorts of things change and as your own life story has shifted but i'm i'm interested in the fact that you write your own private story and you also say that you're only allowed to do it after people have died as well, because it's not fair to write about them when they're living. And I think probably along with yours, of course, the top memoir of the year that people are talking about is obviously Prince Harry's Spare. And I wondered if you have any thoughts on that.
2: Well, I haven't read it.
1: I mean, I will. I probably I will read it.
2: Um, I just haven't had time. Yeah, I mean, it it, it illustrates the problems, really, doesn't it? That I, I suppose, in particularly, what he says. About his brother, many mm. people will feel that he's overstepping the mark, and he might have kept that to himself and might have been a bit more diplomatic, but he's on a mission, and you know for him, it's probably vitally important that to say honest things about members of his family yeah I would find I would find that difficult i mean I think you know the book about my father there are things about. Other people in that book, which some of them would have found very difficult to live with, and that you know, in other words, I, I do touch on living people, but there's a kind of freedom and honesty that comes after death. I think I don't think it's taking advantage of the dead so much as feeling they've gone, and you know, you can be more direct and honest about them than when you were alive. They don't have to read it. Is another, is another mm-hmm. factor. My my a, a great friend and an earlier girlfriend of mine and a great friend of my sister's said, she'd be delighted that you've written a book about her. She, she hoped you'd she write a book about her. And I take comfort from that because I think there are some bits in there that she probably wouldn't like to read at all, as there would be for my father and as there would be for my mother. On the other hand, I think mm-hmm. if these are compassionate books and loving books and they're not settling scores with these people, and I had no scores to settle with them, I hope they come across in a way that people will like them and warm to them and not feel doubtful about my motives. I mean, going back to Louise and Liam, I mean, if Louise and Liam had said, this is a terrible idea to publish this book and we hate it, I don't think I would have published it. I certainly remember showing the book about my dad to my mum and my deal with myself is she doesn't like it, I will put it away. And luckily, she, she was okay with it and asked for one or two changes. Louise and Liam, the same, just modest change here and there. And go ahead because I was telling the truth. It's my story. They would tell a different story about their mum than I'm telling about my sister. But I did have that permission. And I do think this idea of consent is 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 important. I mean, I haven't gone over borders or I haven't gone to extremes that some people do in seeking consent you know the idea that you would have to kind of consult every single person <laughs> that you mention in any way or if you report a conversation with somebody that you would have to get their permission I, I there are extremes to which I wouldn't go but the main important mm-hmm. things I feel I've had consent for and that's key I think because I think this idea of consent or the rights of the people being written about has become much bigger uh, over the 30 years since the book about my dad.
1: You used the phrase um, settling the score and you described Prince Harry as being on a mission and I wondered, do you think that there's a danger in people wanting to write memoirs or or commit their family story down to paper in order to have their side of the story told and, you know, tell their truth or... You know, does that necessarily, can that lead to great fiction if there's motive behind it? Or not fiction, sorry, great writing if there's motive behind it? Or do you think that that's actually quite a lot of the time is the reason why people do start engaging with their memoirs?
2: Uh, I think people do often start engaging with memoirs because they've had a traumatic episode or traumatic childhood. They have stuff Mm. they, they feel in order to grow and develop as a human being, they have to get out. And they feel they want to share that story with others. That that's an important part of healing, if you like, for them. I think if your memoir is entirely or mostly concerned with score settling, if it has malicious intent, really, then it's a risky business. I wouldn't want to write a book like that. But mm. some people have had terrible, terrible childhoods or experiences uh where they feel it's only right to to tell that story and mm-hmm. you know who are we to stop them we don't have to read their book if we think god this is i don't want to read about this person's miserable marriage and divorce um mm-hmm. god you know that's not for me but that we have that choice as readers you know we're not compelled to read these memoirs we can say look leave it i don't want to read this book about an alcoholic sister i don't want to read this book about an abusive dad we can we you know we're not we're not forced to read. So I think they should be out there in the world. And, you know, I yeah, defend Harry's, Harry's right to, <laughs> to have written his book, even if in some ways yes, but, it seems unwise.
1: But even if it's not unwise due to consent in those situations, I, I sort of, I think um, some people would find it concerning that other people are making a profit of people's family Trauma, or their unhappy lives, or difficult things that have happened to them. Whether it's, uh, you know, the publisher or or people, it's all to do with sales. And you're right in that we don't have to read it, but it's um, it's an unsettling feeling to know that people uh, make money off other people's distress. Yeah,
2: it would be a very cynical motive to write a book about your own, <laughs> or for own. someone
1: to pick up someone's book. I mean, for someone to sort of give you the advance on a book for that reason, because they think it will sell your your difficult history.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, publishers have got to sell books and, you know, mm. rightly or wrongly, if they think, God, this is a good story, even though it's a terrible set of circumstances being described, you can hardly really blame an editor for not wanting to get it out there.
0: Uh, mm. I
2: suppose it's the, motive, it's the motivation of the writer if it's cynical, you know, I could, God, I could make a real hit of this, of this, you know, I would, my flesh would creep at such an idea. Um mm-hmm. And I think the truth is that for, particularly for literary memoir, if not celebrity memoir, you know, re- re- rewards are very meager. You know, you don't, make, you don't make much profit out of others' expense. I once wrote a, a poem about, a long poem about Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and somebody, mm-hmm without ever reading it, just, just because he was such a controversial figure, wrote some news piece about it coming out and saying I was profiting from other people's distress and grief. You know, the simple answer was it was poetry. There was no profit in it. And it was an important thing I wanted to say about Sutcliffe. So I didn't feel I the fact people had died because of him prevented me from writing about him.
0: Hmm.
1: But also it had literary merit, which is what you can use as well for that, whereas not everything does. But you actually say in the book, aren't all lives however damaged of importance? And I was thinking about that, and you were saying with your own students at Goldsmith and other new writers worry that their life might not be important enough to be worth telling. And I wondered if you thought that by default every life has a story or if that's not true sorry more philosophical question
2: for you, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah you're always putting me on the spot um I, no I think every life is important obviously some lives are more colorful than others some lives you know you just the stories are all there and they, they're like a gift to you um, because you have some larger than life person in the family or whatever it is but I think any life in the hands of a good enough writer can be fascinating and, and compelling. Obviously, it depends on the quality of, of the writing more, more than anything. But yeah, intrinsically, all lives are interesting. For For publishers of memoirs, it probably helps if there's some extremity about it, some, if you like, slightly sensational aspect to it. I have a former student of mine has got a memoir Coming out next year about the, the ten years she spent in a closed community, in effect as a nun, and and then and then ran away and came out, and it's it's a very compelling story. And obviously, on the face of it, it's going to be more exciting than someone talking about growing up comfortably in a middle-class semi, and uh, and <laughs> going to university, and yep. Um, <laughs> but but you know, if the writing is good enough. It's amazing mm. what can come out.
1: Mm. So, it is all to do with the quality of the writing. And I wondered, moving away just from memoir and life writing, I wondered what your thoughts are on the state of contemporary fiction in general. You've been writing for a very long time, you've moved through many genres. When you're the sort of contemporary things that you're reading and that you're seeing being reviewed, do you think that the standard Is higher or just as high, or are you you excited about the state of art and literature at the moment?
2: Um, I Not about excited. Um, Maybe that's age talking. That it's harder to feel excited, but certainly I respect the the writing coming out now as much as I'm not, you know, of that generation getting on a bit who think it was all much better in my day. And you know, young writers of today, they don't know what they're doing. I don't feel that at all. In fact, I'm really struck by the students who get at Goldsmiths who come The standard, just goes higher and higher. The beginning standard, you know, when they come in, they're just so much more clued in than than 20 years ago when I began there, and certainly than I was when I started writing. Uh, and I feel, you know, that's true of contemporary fiction as much as memoir, that there's some really, yeah, great great books out there. I don't think it's gone downhill, and things change all the time, you know. When I, the kind of fiction that, uh, if you like, was coming out just before I, my memoir, you know, it was the big boys, the big, the big boys in in the states, and the big boys here, and that that's changed hugely in in mm. that time because that meant, you know, white male heterosexual uh, middle class, etc. And and again, that, that that world has changed, and that's all all for the better because we've you know we've got some really Compelling novels have come out from margins, from other places, from different communities, with different emphasis. So, yeah, I'm still, I still, I still buy, I buy more books than I ever did. I had years as a literary editor where th- they were sent to me, um but now yeah. I'm, I'm constantly <laughs> buying, and I and I buy work by by younger writers as well as, you know, the work of of, of my generation. Mm,
1: that's a, I'm glad to hear that. I was wondering, are there any poets especially that you're you know, you, you can sort of spot them and you're engaging with their work. Or you how do you feel about poetry at the moment? And poetry also how it's respected as a genre. Do you think that's changed?
2: Yes, I think it has. I think there are a lot more poets out there. There are a lot more readings of pamphlet for I've just published a pamphlet and I think pamphlets have, have become a much bigger thing. I think I look at some of the younger particularly women poets fiona benson the two two the two berries uh and um uh, former student of mine Anthony Joseph, who just won the t s Eliot prize and um yeah lots of good lots of good stuff out there mm. and again, particularly i think uh for women, you know poetry has become much more it's not. I wouldn't call it a woman's form, but you know, when Andrew Motion and I edited the Penguin Book of Contemporary British Poetry, there were six women in an anthology of twenty. That wasn't yes. terrible. That was. I remember an anthology that came out where there were there were six women out of a hundred contributors. But now you would you would expect there to probably be a majority of women in a a contemporary anthology of poetry. Um, yeah. And um, again, you know, I think this is good development because there's just such such good writing coming coming through
1: and speaking of all good writing I've got to ask because I'm so nosy if is there anything that you have your eye on working on as a project next any particular form or any topic that's you're mulling over or can you not reveal
2: (laughs) well uh I'd love to say you know I'm halfway through a novel or um (laughs) I have got a (laughs) And I, and I can't. Uh, I have got a pamphlet of poems coming out now, and also one later mm. in the year, and that's good. Um, and I'd like to think there could be a full collection of poems. Yeah, but the thing I've been playing around with a little bit is a, a, a kind of A to Z of life writing, because I've, you know, life writing, particularly has been my specialism, I guess, as a writer, but also at Goldsmiths and. I just have never thought about it. And now rather late in the day, I thought, well, yeah, maybe a, a an odd little book about life writing and things to think about in life writing, aimed at people who want to do it, but also for a more general readership. Yeah, I quite fancy doing that. But, you know, it's early days.
1: I think that'd be brilliant. I think uh, I would... <laughs> I wholeheartedly think that's a, a fantastic idea. But Blake, thank you so much for talking to me. I've I've picked your brains about so much and you've been very kind, um, especially with my curveball questions. But it's a real pleasure to chat to you. So thank you very much.
2: I enjoyed talking to you. And even those difficult questions were fun. Thank you.
1: <laughs> okay, good.
0: This episode of the podcast starred Blake Morrison and was produced and presented by Esme Bright. Esme makes the series with me, Vas Christodoulou and we have help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Daugherty. If you love literature, you might also enjoy Esme's interviews with Max Porter and Irvin Welsh, available at howtoacademy.com or wherever you're listening to this. We're back on Friday with Senator Bernie Sanders. Until next time, thanks for listening.